Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, where we talk to mental health professionals, educators, and advocates. No Shame on You is a 501c3 organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. Our goal is for people who need help to seek it, for family members and friends to know how to provide proper support and to save lives. Now, here's your host, No Shame on You's founder and president, Miriam Ament. Welcome to the 16th podcast of No Shame on You, an organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. My name is Miriam Ament, and I'm the founder of No Shame on You. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Joel Dworkin, an inspirational person who I am so excited I got to meet through my collaborations with the Mishkan community here in Chicago. Hi, Joel. So great to have you here on our podcast. You're going to make me blush, Mary. It's been really great to be here. This has been a long time coming. Yes. And now we both magically have the time for the interview. Funny how that happens. Um, yeah, so I wanted, was. yeah. So speaking of these times, I wanted to ask in general, how are you doing during these extraordinary times in our world? Um, I'm doing relatively well. Um, my wife, Lauren, and I have been uh, holed up in our apartment with our dog for just, I think today is the uh, beginning of week three. Wow. Um, yeah, it's been going well. We've spent a lot of time um, cleaning, alternating uh, who gets to exercise. We're both still working. Uh, we're relatively occupied. Uh, the dog gets much longer walks now, which she's very happy about. <laughs> That's very funny. So there, there are some pluses. There are some pluses. Yeah. There you there go. Are. Dogs are definitely winners in the quarantine <laughs> world. <laughs> That's funny. It's so true. It's so true. That's very funny. Um, so you have quite a journey with addiction, um, and you've been in recovery for many years. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners about your journey uh, with addiction yeah. and sort of your whole, your whole story. I'm happy to. Um, I guess it can start long before um, I ever actually made the um, leap into recovery. Um, I started using drugs and drinking when I was about 12 years old. Um, I guess I can qualify some of this now. No. I'm Joel. I'm a drug addict, alcoholic. Um, I've been clean for just over 12 years. Actually, March 7th was um, my 12-year anniversary. Amazing. Congratulations. I am a sober bat mitzvah. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Um, I got clean when I was 20, so I have never had a legal drink in my life. Wow. I've had a couple of goes at, um, at least externally, at trying to clean up my act. Um, but only one stint through rehab and recovery proper. Um, started using drugs when I was 12, um, smoking pot, trying you know, pills that were laying around. Um, my dad is a dentist. And when we were younger, just like many other um, medical practitioners in the 90s, there were you know, random boxes of painkiller samples around, which was one of my first entryways into serious drug use. Um, I found a box of Vicodin that had probably made it from uh, his original practice into a private practice that he went into. Um, we moved from Pennsylvania to New Jersey, and uh, that was an 
early gateway into what would become a very obsessive uh, drug problem. Um, I think that one of the other pieces of my story, most of it is pretty humdrum. I smoked pot, I tried psychedelics, I used pills, I went away to college and that eventually got me into cocaine and heroin and intravenous drug use and the point where everything was a problem and it became all consuming, um, which eventually led me to failure, dropping out and going into treatment. Right. What was particularly unique that I found a few years into recovery was when I was 16, 17 years old, I was probably on my second or third getting in trouble, getting kicked out of school, um, behavioral problems. And this, like I'm sure for many other Jewish people in recovery, was leaching into my Hebrew school life. I, mean, I can't, can't speak to that many people that went to Hebrew high or post-confirmation, but I was, was not that I was particularly Jewish, although I'm now married to a rabbi, so I don't really know how much license I have to say that I wasn't particularly Jewish. <laughs> uh, but my... Hebrew school teachers and administrators and synagogue staff knew just as well as my public school teachers and their staff what was going on. And they were very supportive of me. They kept me very accountable. Um, they were the ones who would check in with me and let me know that it was a problem when I was really screwing up and who would give me a pat on the back and encouragement when I was staying out of trouble or staying clean or at least not heavily using drugs. Uh, I was about three or four years clean. I started working at a Ramah camp in Colorado and started encountering other people who had dealt with other addiction and mental health issues in uh, the Jewish world. And started out then that one of the first things that happened when their synagogues found out or their parents turned to their clergy was that they were shamed or even shunned. Oh. Um, I know it's the reason, Miriam, that you have this organization is because you know, people will bring a casserole to a shiva or to uh, somebody whose child is in the hospital with cancer or a broken leg that nobody brings by baked goods when your kid goes to rehab. Right. right. I didn't know that until... I was already well out of this. Uh, and as I met more and more people in the Jewish recovery world, I found out more and more that my story was really unique. Yeah, I don't often hear that somebody said, you know, my, at least 10, 15 years ago, uh, I went to my rabbi because my kid had a drug problem and he brought him in and the whole community surrounded him and he started going to Minion every morning. Right, this, right, right. This is a Shanda for the Goyim. We're not going to... A shame to our people. Right, 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 right. Going to abide this. Please come back when you know you're well. Right, right, right. No, that's amazing, and it's wonderful that your community embraced you. Yeah, I think that is probably how I've been able to be such a part of Jewish recovery world ever since. Um, 
same director, uh, Rabbi Eliav Bach, uh, the founding and still to this day uh, executive director of Rahman Larakis, came to me my, after a second or third year and started asking what the property might look like if we made it into a therapeutic treatment center during the off season. Right. Uh, which led me to start inquiring and him to find people to start heading up this project that has now become a Bamid Bar therapy. Right. Uh, and Bamid Bar does wonderful, wonderful work. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing work with sorts of uh, mental health issues well beyond addiction for uh, young Jewish adults. Right. That's awesome. And I know, I know I've referred people uh, to the program who've, who've enjoyed it. So I, I know they do wonderful things. So thank you for being a part of starting it. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see that there are spaces in Judaism for you know, outdoor education and recovery. And when the two can come together, that's just all the better. Right. No, exactly. Um, I wanted to ask though, we, we sort of, how did you, so it's, I mean, you talked about how for many years you were sort of religiously, if you will, <laughs> you know, um, you know, taking drugs and alcohol and, and doing your thing. How did you, it, it's such a mindset to be able to switch and now to be celebrating 12 years in recovery is truly unbelievable. Um, I mean, every day is truly unbelievable. How did you, how were you able to make that, that shift and sort of get yourself to the place that you're at now? It happened over, in reality, I think it was a couple of week period. Uh, to be honest, I remember very little of it. I originally attended the University of Hartford in Connecticut. Um, I made it through most of my freshman year. Um, and I went home to visit my mom for a surprise 50th birthday party. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Uh, the point when train um my aunt and my aunt and uncle picked me up and i i can't tell you exactly how i looked but i had a beard down through my neck um not that i don't have that now but it was a much more scraggly beard gotcha um i am five foot six and i probably weigh most days about 180 pounds um been stocky guy, but I was down probably to about 130. Wow. Um, yeah. For me, that is very, very, very skinny. Um, that's when I start to look like I have, you know, sucked in stomach and gaunt face. Um, um, so you were saying you to... went home, you were very, you were like 130 pounds. Your aunt and uncle picked you up from the train? Yep. And I think that they were being a little avoidant noticing you know, their daughter also had uh, gone to rehab years before. And she actually ended up getting sober this time around five days before I did. So every year in March, we give each, well, I see her plenty, but we also give each other a call the first week in March to wish each other a happy you know, sober anniversary. Right. Oh, that's so sweet. Mm hmm. So my parents just pulled me upstairs to ask me what was going on. And I told them flat out, you know, I'm a, a drug addict. This is what's been going on. I've been doing heroin. Um, I think I need some kind of help. 
um, they asked me right then and there if I wanted to just, you know, stay there and kind of dry out on the couch while we figured out what was going on. And I said, nope, happy to go back up north. Don't worry about me. Uh, and kind of disappeared for the next week. Uh, I think I was in pretty regular phone communication with them. According to them, uh, they suggested that start finding some kind that it wouldn't work unless I did an inpatient treatment center. I, again, don't remember doing that, but apparently it was my idea. They said that you said you wanted to start a treatment? I missed uh, yes. it. Okay. Um, they told me that I suggested that I start an inpatient rehab um, after they suggested an intensive outpatient so I could keep going to school. Among the other themes in the Jewish world of recovery is that while we would love for our children to be healthy, you know, God forbid that they don't finish a bachelor's degree by the time <laughs> right. 23 if you did a, uh, a gap year. <laughs> For reference, I graduated from the um, from Roosevelt University at the age of thirty. Awesome! Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Why? Thank you. <laughs> so you suggested in treatment. I suggested inpatient treatment. Um, I spent a week going between Hartford and New Haven and getting drugs and deciding if I wanted to just run away from this entire idea. Um, then another week down in New Jersey uh, on my parents' couch while we waited for a bed to open up at the Karen Foundation in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, This was in maybe the second year of their email program uh, that has now expanded into full-fledged young adult programs for people of all genders. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And yeah, I went... um, I spent a month in uh, this unit. Uh, they referred me to a place called Gray Wolf Ranch, um, where I spent a further five months. Oh, wow. Okay. It's six months of inpatient and five of um, sober living. After. Six months of inpatient and five months of sober living in like a sober house? Halfway house, yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's a, that's a commitment. I mean, that's a, yeah. Okay. And then once you were done with those 11 months, where did you trend? What like type of living situation did you transition into? Um, I moved into an apartment uh, across the street from my halfway house uh, <laughs> with one of the people that I had lived with in that house who yeah. I had treatment with pretty much the entire way. Okay. That's cool. Um, in the apartment I'm sponsor. In the apartment what? Below my AA sponsor at the time. Oh, nice. So okay. I was, it, it was like sober rehab row. Got it. Where I was. Which is great though. Cause I know, yeah. I mean, and I'm sure you know more than I do, but from what I understand, one of the hardest things is then transitioning back into, you know, sort of the real world. So having that yes. support is is crucial. In reality, I stayed in Washington of about 6,000. I stayed there for almost years. For almost how long? Um, four years. Oh, you stayed in Washington for four years after the five months in the sober house? Yeah. Oh, wow. It, I, I didn't go back into the world for a very long time. My but transition is very slow. Okay. That, but that, but you know. I know. I work to school. 
I just did it all in this place where I, and then once I had that foundation, I was able to, to move on. And obviously that was the right thing for you. Cause you're, you know, just, thank you. you're over 12 years, which is incredible. So, well, that's incredible. During, during these um, shelter in place times, what we're going through right now, what has been most helpful to you and what would you advise other people who I know it's hard to be home and, you know, um, it can trigger all sorts of feelings and, and, you know, thoughts. So what, um, what's been helpful for you and what would you tell other people who are in recovery? Um, I think the most important thing for me has been to stay connected to other people. Um, I have been in constant touch with friends, family, um, coworkers. You know, I have a staff of 15 I've been going through and checking in uh, daily, or not all, but some of them each day, old right. friends uh, who I used to work with. Uh, just making sure that I am, especially as an extrovert, going out to other people. Uh, I was on a call last week a good friend who's actually the original manager for Bamid Bar named Hindi Finman. She's a rabbinical student oh. in uh, Boston. She reached you out. Hindi? She reached out to me oh. to send resources. I didn't realize she was uh, affiliated with Bamid Bar. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. She okay. She was a uh, jewelry before jewelry. Oh, I did not know that. That's so funny. Yep. I, okay. Also one of my best friends. Uh, you gave speech at my like week. So oh, I was on a, in a class that she was yesterday and a guy who was talking about his recovery and Judaism talked about uh, that he was on this particular path alone. And I don't think that he did more that it was about his own journey and perspective, but my thought immediately was in her journey and particularly in recovery you should not be alone and you never really are. Right. So finding the community is really key. And in these days, especially um, the phone, getting on zoom on Skype on Google Hangouts and being with people uh, right now, you can hide away physically and emotionally in an apartment and not, no one has to know what you're doing. Right. Uh, so it's even more incumbent upon me to let other people in radically honest and just let them know what's going on with me. That's awesome. No, but that's great. So it's, it's really the connections that's, that, that helps you the most. Yes, Absolutely. And then um, in general, what advice would you give any, for anyone with a family member or friend living with addiction? Um, you know, much like your, it sounds like your family and, and you, your community rallied around you. What would you say if someone, you know, they have a family member or a friend who's going, you, they, they come home and you see that they're, they've lost a ton of weight and they're not totally with it. You know, what's, do you have any tips for how family should manage that? I think that... It's important to let people in your life who are having these struggles know, A, that you're there, B, you see. See that it is not something they should be ashamed of, and D, that it's something you want to see them get help with and that you won't 
tolerate forever. Um, making sure that somebody has, or feels like they have communion giving their behaviors. You know, if somebody stops drinking and then picks up a drink again after a few months, then make sure that you know, they know that that's not the end and they can keep giving this a try. But if somebody continues to take drugs and then every couple of weeks you find your wallet empty, you help people, but their actions are still their actions. Got it. So it sounds like there's not a, you don't think there, there's not a one size fits all approach. No, there's really not. And some right. people need something a little more soft and some people need something a little more tough. Some people are also going to have a stronger intrinsic motivation to change their behavior or their people won't. That's very helpful um, for people to understand that you're, really have to uh, tailor your process and your approach to how the, per, you know, the person and then how they're reacting. There's a therapeutic saying um, for the people in the lives of an addict or an alcoholic that you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. It's only going to get as well as I was willing to work for. Got it. So got it. It has to come. Very strong alliteration. Okay. No, that is good alliteration. And it, and it come, it, it had to come from you. Like you had to be ready to, to make the effort to, to change your, what you were up to. Yeah. I, when I originally went to treatment, I met people there who were on, you know, their dozenth stint in rehab. Um, and I met people who had very minimal problems who were there for their first time and decided that they were bought in. I had people who were on the brink who decided that they were bought in. And I had people all throughout the middle who weren't really interested in changing their lives or behavior or actions or anything. Interesting. So, I mean, so it's like you, even in your experiences where people were in a, a, a situation where they were trying to get sober, you saw the many different attitudes that people could have about, yeah. okay, got it. There's trying. And then there's, since your you were, your listeners won't see me doing air quotes. <laughs> Some people try to get sober because their families threaten to cut right. them off or because is going to let them go. A school is going to kick them out. Got it. Um, some people try over and over because they really genuinely want to, and then they get out and they don't know how to utilize the tools that they were given, or they've never realized any of anything said to them, and they're not able to put it into play. Right. So, okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. So, I think it's helpful for families and friends to understand you know, that there are so many levels and, and degrees of, of getting better and trying to get better and many ways to approach your loved one during these times. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for your uh, tips on, uh, on what to do in these times of social or how, how you're managing things in this time of social distancing. Um, anything else you want to share before we uh, close up? Um, I think that now more than any other time, it's whether someone is dealing with 
their own addiction or someone else's addiction or just every day being alone in an apartment for two weeks isn't easy for anybody, no matter your general degree of mental health. Um, right. And I would suggest that reaching out and keeping community is good advice for anybody. Uh, you know, if, if you seek mental care when your mental health is, then that will, if you seek mental health care when your mental health is good, it will improve it. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So connecting is, is key. Yes. For everybody. For everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, connection is key. And there, and there is, and I think I want to underscore that, and there is community out there. There are so many resources out there. There are lots of online groups going on and online, mm -hmm. community, like you said, you know, community is key. There are so many different types of communities out there right now. And I know people are uh, increasing their programming, their virtual programming more and more, a lot of different organizations and community. Yep. That and exercise. Don't sit on your ass for this entire uh, quarantine. <laughs> right. Yes. I'm definitely trying to get steps in, even if it's in my house. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get 20 some. minutes, a half hour of random exercise, and it, I just feel better. Exactly. No, moving is key. And it helps not only your physical health, but your mental health as well, for, for yes. sure. What we're talking about. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. And don't feel guilty for binge watching something on Netflix. Sometimes <laughs> you deserve that too. Yes, exactly. I, yes, I think people, as, yeah, people are definitely getting their Netflix and, uh, you know, other shows in right now. So mm -hmm. for sure. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was such an, it's such an honor to have you. I'm, I'm glad we finally were able to do it. I'm sorry Thanks why we were finally able to do it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad. Um, and um, for any other information, um, people can go to noshameonyou.org for our mental health resources. And um, and, and our virtual programs going on right now. And, um, and thank you, Joel. So, I mean, we, what, a, what a tremendous person. And, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Miriam. I'm happy to be here. Thank you.